This is the word of the Lord. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, uh, uh, we thank you for your holy word. Uh, mysterious, uh, but light to us. Our, um, the only trustworthy truth. The revelation of our Creator. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, open our minds and hearts to understand your word, and you take these words and apply them into our lives. And you would lead us to our Savior, that we would receive him by faith, and we would follow him with obedience. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, for a long time, I've wanted to give a sermon on singing and waiting for the right passage. And today is the day. It's finally come. Revelation chapter 14 uh, is a great passage for us today to talk about the importance of singing as a church, singing as Christians. And I think uh, this is a passage that really shows how deep, how transformative, how spiritual the act of singing is among God's people is in the Bible. And so uh, since this is an important topic to me, I'm going to do a little longer uh, introduction. And part of the reason for that is because I know that some people would say, even as Christians, oh, I, I just don't sing. And, uh, and you might think there are some people that have good voices and some people have b bad voices. Let's just let the people with good voices sing and then we will spare us the, uh, our, the voices of those who can't sing. And I've, I know that I've seen people who've been Christians for decades, who come to church week in and week out, and they just stand there and listen. And, uh, and um, I think the reason for that is because they might say, well, I'm tone deaf. And maybe you've said that about yourself, that you're tone deaf. I really actually don't think that tone deaf is a thing. I thought I was tone deaf when I was a teenager. I could not sing in pitch, and uh, I was in a high school Christian punk band, which is where I learned to sing, which is very forgiving because, you know, high school punk bands don't require very good quality singing. But it was really in church. It was in the homes of other Christians and on Sunday mornings that I really uh, learned to sing. And uh, singing is like anything. It's not natural. You need to learn how to do it. And the Bible seems to assume that all of God's people would learn. The longest book in the Bible is the songbook, the book of Psalms. Actually, the Apostle Paul in one place, Ephesians 
5, verses 18 to 20, he uses five verbs to describe people that are filled with the Holy Spirit. And three of the five verbs have to do with singing. Singing is deeply tied to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And uh, learning to sing is an essential part of Christian discipleship. I just want to say that very clearly. Learning to sing is an essential part, just like learning to pray, just like learning to read the Bible, just like learning to, to love your spouse and love your neighbor. Learning to sing it is an essential part of Christian discipleship. Because how are you going to praise God if you don't know how to sing? How are you going to do what Romans 15, 6 says, together with one voice glorify, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? And we live in a culture where singing is largely done for us by other people. And actually, there's a, an article that was in the Washington Post just a couple weeks ago. It's called, Singing is Good for You, Singing with Others May Be Even Better. Let me just read a few quotes from it. This is what it says. The Sing With Us study is part of a growing body of research that points to the physical and mental health benefits of singing with others. Sing With Us linked singing in the choir to reduce stress hormones, uh, and increased proteins that can boost the body's ability to fight serious illness. Other studies have found a connection between singing generally uh, with lessened anxiety, stimulated memory for those with dementia, increased lung capacity, and an easing of postpartum depression. Choirs are large families, he says, and singing in them promotes social bonding, which contributes to a sense of belonging and joy. Research bears this out. Studies have found that group singing fosters trust, cooperation, and social cohesion. And I have to say, I generally dislike articles like this because basically it's saying, science has finally shown us what people have known for centuries, that singing with other people is good for you. And it's like, why don't we just believe the Bible? The Bible said we should sing. It's pretty obvious, but we need a scientific study to kind of prove it to us that, that being human, you were made to sing. And G.K. Chesterton says that we should see it as odd that our culture doesn't sing in community, that we watch other people sing. He says it's kind of like, you imagine if, if you went to concerts to watch people laugh for you. And, they're, you know, it's just a fundamental human thing. I'm going to listen to people laugh on the radio. I'm not going to do it myself. I'm going to watch it. You'd say, that's strange. Why are you having other people laugh? You were meant to do that. Now, we are studying the book of Revelation and it turns out that this passage today tells the importance of singing for a reason that we might not have thought. Is that singing is how you prepare yourself for martyrdom. Singing is how you prepare yourself for martyrdom. And I'll explain that as we go along in this passage. But let me just first make the case why I believe that this passage that I just read to you is about singing. And the structure of this passage is what's called a chiasm which is a, a poetic structure that's used throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's a structure that kind of structures the passage like concentric circles. So the first half of the passage is in the form of A, B, C. And then the second half of the passage is C, B, A. So the passage kind of ends where it begins. And so, uh, so for example, this passage starts in verse 1 with a mention of the Lamb. And then verse 4 ends with God and the Lamb. There's the Lamb again. So there's a repetition. And then you see inside the two mentions of the Lamb is 144,000, both in verse 1 and in verse 3, uh, the second part of verse 3. And then inside the two 144,000s, 
our voice and song. Second part of verse 2 says, the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists. And then in verse 3, and they were singing a new song. Now, when a chiasm is used, the center of the chiasm is the main point of the passage. And in this passage, the center of the chiasm is singing. This passage is telling us how important singing was to the early Christians and how important it is to us even today. And so today I want to make uh, four observations about the importance of singing, why it's essential to discipleship for us as a church community, okay? And this is the four things I want to point out, is that first, singing brings us to Mount Zion. Second, singing, singing prepares us for martyrdom. Third, singing changes us. It transforms us. It has a transformative power in us. And fourth, singing joins us to Jesus. So four things that singing does, that it brings us to Mount Zion, it prepares us for martyrdom, it changes us, and ultimately it joins us to Jesus. And, and my hope is that our community would be a community of robust singers, that we would come in here, and I'm learning to sing, I'm still trying to learn to sing, and I invite you to come along, but when we come here on Sunday morning, that this is an experience not of a band playing for people who are passively watching, and I'm not saying that you guys are that way but that we are a church that together is lifting our voices to the Lord in song. So four points on singing this morning. The first is this, is that singing brings us to Mount Zion. Singing brings us to Mount Zion. Now you'll notice this passage begins with the mention of Mount Zion in verse 1, where it says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. What is Mount Zion? Well, in the old city of Jerusalem, there were seven hills that were both in the city of Jerusalem and just in, in the surrounding area that made up kind of the seven hills of Jerusalem. And some of you, you maybe have heard, some of you, you maybe heard of, like the Mount of Olives or the Temple Mount is the mount where the, where the temple was. Well, uh, Mount Zion is different than those. Mount Zion is the fortress and it was the city of David. And I want to give you a little back uh, story because Mount Zion is related to singing. And uh, in the Old Testament, the, the great book of worship is the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus was about the worship that would happen in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent where God met with his people. And the Old Testament was constructed under Moses um, in, uh, in Exodus. And, um, and if you read through the book of Leviticus, one of the things that's surprising is that you'll find no mention of singing. Uh, there's a lot of bloody sacrifices. There are a lot of rites that happen, but singing is not mentioned. And, uh, and so when did singing start as a part of the worship of God's people? Well, when David became king about 400 years later, after the building of the, of the tabernacle, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant was inside the tabernacle in the most holy place, and no one was allowed to go into that most holy place, except once a year the high priest went in there. But people generally did not go, not even the Levites went among the, the Ark of the Covenant. But the Ark of the Covenant was taken out of the tabernacle, and it was passed around. It went into the, some Philistine towns, and they had it for a while. And eventually, when David becomes king, he takes the Ark, and he brings it to Mount Zion. And he sets up a tent where a new place of worship. So actually there were two tents. There was the tent of David, which had the ark in it, and then there was the tabernacle, which was in Gibeon. Gibeon was in northwest of Jerusalem. So you had these two places, and all the bloody sacrifices were happening at the tabernacle. 
But something different was happening at David's tent. And actually in David's tent, you could come near the ark. You could come near God's presence. Actually, it says in, in uh, 1 Chronicles uh, 16.4 about the Levites that they ministered before the ark. It was an access to God that was never given in the tabernacle. And there were no animal sacrifices happening there. What was happening instead was the sacrifice of praise. And just as they would kill the animals and smoke would rise up to God, now there were these songs that were happening that were rising up to God. And the new worship that was happening with David was access to God and song. It was David and Mount Zion that made singing and music central to the worship of God. And so Mount Zion is the city of song. Now you might wonder, uh, well, that's great. What does Mount Zion have to do with us and what we're doing here? Well, there's another book in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, that is generally considered to be a sermon that was read into an early congregation just like ours. And a congregation come together and they're singing and they're worshiping God. And in the book of Hebrews, this is what the sermon says to the people who've gathered in Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And so just as in Hebrews, the church there had actually entered into Mount Zion when they came together in song. They, uh, in Revelation 14, these 144,000 are gathered together in song, and they're in Mount Zion. And when we gather here, we are in Mount Zion. We are in the presence of innumerable angels. We are before God's throne. We have access to him. We're also in the presence of the spirits of, of the righteous made perfect. You know, when we say uh, every week that we, in the Apostles' Creed, that we believe in the communion of the saints, we have fellowship with Christians in every nation, singing in every tongue, and even the heavenly hosts that are singing with God, we have communion with all of them as we come together and sing. And so this is a powerful picture of what happens when we sing to God, is that singing brings us to Mount Zion. But there's one other thing about Mount Zion that I want to point out. It's not only that it's a city of worship and song, but, you know, the Hebrew word for instrument, musical instrument, and weapon it's the same word. It's, sometimes it's not clear which way you should translate it. And Mount Zion was not only a city of song, it was a fortress. It was a city prepared for warfare. Song and warfare go together in the Bible. And so that leads to the second thing we learn about singing in this passage, is that singing prepares us for martyrdom. That is the warfare of Christians, is being prepared for martyrdom. Now, again, you'll notice how this passage begins in verse 1, how it says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000. Now, if you were with us last summer, we met these 144,000 uh, in Revelation chapter 7, and we found out there that they were Israelites. There was 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel make up 144,000. And we said then that this is the number of Jewish Christians who would be martyred during the great persecution of the first generation of Christians. And likely some of these 144,000 who were killed 
were the first recipients of the book of Revelation. Revelation was written just before this persecution was happening. It was written to help prepare the martyrs for what they were going to go through. And some of these 144,000 probably read and heard the book of Revelation. And that's why in the last chapter, in chapter uh, 13, verse 10, this is what it says. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain by the sword... With the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And so these 144,000 are being prepared to be taken captive and to be slain. And you, and you might wonder, well, is this a literal 144,000 people? Well, we don't know, but uh, the first century Jewish historian Josephus said that during the siege on Jerusalem and the persecution of both Jews and Christians, uh, during the, the um, seven years that Revelation is talking about, there were 1.1 million Jews killed by the Romans. And so you imagine this is around, the, around Jerusalem, around the churches that, uh, that are being written to in the time of Revelation. And you might imagine, of all those Jews, is it possible that 10 to 15% of them heard that Jesus was the Messiah and believed and then died believing in Jesus? It's a very possible number that this is about how many people were killed. And you might wonder, well, how do we get from this passage that the 144,000 are martyrs? Does it say that anywhere in this passage? Well, on the one hand, it says that they're standing on Mount Zion with the lamb. And when the, Jesus is described as the lamb, it's talking about his sacrifice, that he was going to be killed. He was killed on the cross, sacrificed for our sins. So his martyrdom. So martyrdom is kind of looming in the passage. But I think a stronger clue is there in the second part of verse 4, where it says, these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. The 144,000 are the first fruits being harvested by God. And in two weeks, when we get to the end of Revelation chapter 14, we'll find out that the fruits are killed. The, the, uh, and I'll just read to you a couple verses from verses 19 and 20. Later in chapter 14, this is what it says. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So what it's saying is just as Jesus fell under the wrath of God when he died on the cross, his first followers, these 144,000, would also fall under the wrath of God. It would be part of this first generation of establishing the gospel. Uh, and so here in the beginning of Revelation 14, they are being prepared for martyrdom, and how do they do it? Verse 3 tells us, And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And so singing prepares us to be willing to die for our Lord. That's what we're doing when we're singing. And, uh, and actually, some of you know that there's a long tradition of Christian martyrs throughout history who would sing hymns as they were being killed. That singing and martyrdom are closely tied together. And one author puts it that victorious singing gives us courage. And so the question for us is, what kind of singing should we experience here that is going to make us people of courage? Well, I think it should sound like verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. 
You know, don't we all love when we come to church and it's not just a band playing, but it is the congregation's voices that feel like a roar of many waters and it feels like thunder that is surrounding us. It's like we're immersed in the presence of God. And if we're going to sound like a roar of many waters and loud thunder, we're going to have to use our bodies. Each of you was given by God an instrument. Your body is an instrument. And it's our duty to learn to use the instrument that God has given to us. And I think it's interesting, even in this passage, the 144,000, they had to learn to sing, right? In verse, the second part of verse 3, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. They had to learn the song. We have to learn the song. And uh, Ava Broom, who's our, our music director, she's on maternity leave right now. She's minutes away from having a baby anytime. Um, but when she comes back, uh, one of the things that she's planning is to start some hymn sings for us as a church, that we would gather together maybe on a Sunday uh, evening or afternoon, and she would teach us to sing, to sing in parts, and to blend our voices together. And some of you might hear an announcement about a, a hymn sing and say, ah, I'm not into a hymn sing. Well, now you've heard the sermon, and so you know the importance it's an essential part of Christian discipleship to learn to sing, and it becomes a blessing to everyone else here when we all know how to sing these songs from use our bodies from way down within us because we are so used to being passive. We watch movies. We watch TV shows. We watch sporting events. We watch other people play sports. We listen to other people play music. Uh, and we are not here to watch a worship service. That's not why you're here. You're not here to listen to a sermon. You are here to worship the living God and to be a part of the heavenly host that is singing and praise to him. And the word martyr means a witness. It means we are witnessing to what we believe in. And so when people come to church here, they should feel like, I feel like these people would die for the thing they're singing about. That's what it should sound like in this community. So... Singing brings us to Mount Zion, the fortress, the city of God, and there we pre prepare for martyrdom, which tells us also that singing and music have a profound power in our lives to shape us. And so that's the, uh, the, the third point that I want to point out, is that singing changes us. Singing changes us. And there's a, a clear sense in this passage about this army of 144,000 martyrs, they're singing a new song, that a big part of how they're described is their character, their character of life. And I want to point, a, uh, uh, point out a few ways that these martyrs' lives have been changed, okay? The first thing that we see about them is that they have been baptized. They've been baptized. You see verse 1 says about the 144,000 that they had his name, the lamb's name, that's Jesus' name, and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, how does Jesus say that we receive the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? It's through baptism. We're baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Our body is marked with baptism with the name of God. And uh, baptism and singing are, are closely tied together. Actually, St. Augustine, in his uh, Confessions, Confessions is basically his autobiography. It's, it's actually considered the first autobiography ever written. It's about his conversion and how he came to know the Lord and what God has done in his life. And, uh, and Augustine was converted in Milan by the great Bishop 
Ambrose, under the preaching of Ambrose, and uh, he was baptized in that church. And so he describes the day of his baptism and the singing that was happening in the church, and this is, this is how he describes it. He says, How copiously I wept at your hymns and canticles. How intensely was I moved by the lovely harmonies of your singing church. You see, it was the harmonies of a singing church. Those voices flooded my ears, and the truth was distilled into my heart until it overflowed in loving devotion. My tears ran down, and I was the better for them. You see what he says? He was better for it. It moved him at such a deep level, he was transformed by the singing. Singing changes us. And the community of baptized people whose songs make us weep have a deep impact on us. Okay, so they've been changed. First of all, they were, they were baptized. Okay, second thing about the 144,000 is that they were sexually whole people. Uh, verse 4, it says, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. And sexual purity, the sexual ethic of the church, was one of the ways that the church was so different than the Roman Empire. This is kind of the anti-Roman culture that they have. And it's very similar to our culture. You know, the Romans thought that Christians were incredibly strange because of their sexual ethic. And our culture thinks that Christians are strange because of our sexual ethic. Um, And you might wonder, okay, were these 144,000, were they literally virgins? Were they all virgins? Well, it's hard to say. You know, Revelation is a, uh, a mixture of literal and metaphorical phrases, and it's, it's not always clear, is this literal or is this metaphorical? But one thing is that the Bible always says that sexual immorality and false worship always are, go together. You know, in the Old Testament, when, when Israel is worshiping idols, they're called the prostitute, or they're giving themselves to whoredom. So it's like it, there's an infidelity in uh, worship, in, in false worship. And actually, earlier in Revelation 3, 330, uh, Jesus rebukes the church in Thyatira because they have a prophetess named Jezebel who is teaching and seducing his servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So you see that pairing of sexual immorality and false worship. They go together all in the Bible. And so this could be a statement about that. Um, but, you know, another thing to say about this verse is that it's, um, it's another reference to warfare. Because in the Old Testament, you find this in a number of places in the Old Testament when the soldiers, David's soldiers, would go out into battle. They would not uh, sleep with their wives or sleep with women. And that was a part of their holiness of going into battle. It was also true in the tabernacle. That if you wanted to come worship in the tabernacle and you'd, you'd had sexual relations, uh, you were unclean for a day. You'd have to wait a day until you were clean uh, again in order uh, to come to the tabernacle. And so these 144,000, they're preparing for the battle of martyrdom and they're preparing to enter the temple of heaven after they die. Okay, so they've been baptized. They're, they live against the sexual ethic of the culture around them. Third, they obey Jesus' commands. You see that in the second part of verse 4 there. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. When Jesus says to do something, they put his commands into practice in their life, whatever cost to them personally. And then the fourth thing we see is that they're people who speak the truth. Uh, verse 5. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. They don't need to lie. They're secure in God's love, and they speak the truth. Which, you know, Matt was talking about that earlier in the service. We, in our confession, 
was about the, w- the use of the tongue, the ways we sin with our mouths. And instead of having mouths that lie, singing fills our mouths with truth. We, not, we don't even speak the truth. We sing the truth. We rejoice in the truth. We love the truth. We're passionate about the truth. And so how do I become a person of sexual integrity, a follower of Jesus, wherever he leads, who speaks the truth? You can't do it without singing. Singing is tied to the rest of our lives and to our affections. And so if you're working on your temper or you're working on not looking at pornography, but come here and then don't sing, this is one of the main ways that God is training your body how to be used for holiness and for his purposes is through song. Singing is used by God to change us. So what we've learned about singing so far, singing brings us to Mount Zion, the city of song, the city of battle. Singing is how we prepare to offer our lives to Jesus. It prepared these early Christians for martyrdom and is one of the primary means God uses to transform our affections and our inner life and our character. But there is one more uh, thing from this passage I want to point out is also that singing joins us to Jesus. Singing joins us to Jesus. Now, and this passage begins by saying that there are these 144,000 martyrs, and the Lamb, that's Jesus, is with them. He's, he's in the midst of them, or they're with him. And so um, when it says in verse 2, and I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder, the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Whose voice is that? Well, you might think from the next verse, it's the martyr's voice, because then it goes on in verse 3, and it says, and they were singing a new song. The roar of many waters is 144,000, but if you actually go back in Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, there's this first vision of Jesus. And, uh, and this is what it says, Revelation 1, 13 and following, this is what it says. And in the midst of the lampstands was uh, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. The voice of many waters is Jesus' voice, which is an incredible thought to think when we come together and we sing and our songs become like thunder and roars of thunder, It's not just our voices we're hearing. We're hearing Jesus' voice. And our voices are blending with his voice. He is the great singer. He is the great worship leader. He is with us every Sunday. And when uh, he brings us into song, he's bringing us into his life. And so as Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, that's even true with our singing. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Singing joins us to our Savior. And so why is singing so important? Because it brings us to Zion, the city of God, and joins us with the choir of God's people everywhere on earth and in heaven and prepares us to offer our lives to him. And the music works in us deeply to transform our deepest affections. But most importantly, in song, we are joined to our Savior, the great singer, the great worship leader. So in him, may we too learn the song of the 144,000. Let's pray together.
Gracious Father in heaven, uh, we are so delighted with the incredible world you have made. And Lord, the thought that our bodies are instruments, they have been formed and tuned by you. And that Jesus is uh, like a music teacher who trains our bodies to be used for praising you, for singing of the truth. And to think that those songs, our words, could be joined with others and be joined with his voice. Uh, Lord, uh, it's truly a delight. And so, Lord, I pray that our uh, church would be a school of singing. Um, that the voices of the young, the voices of the old, and the voices of all would mix together to pl- praise your glorious name. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.